Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. You might not be surprised that today's topic is tontines. When I started researching early life insurance for the Gambling Act episode, I admit I had a bit of a bias against life insurance. I've always considered it a boring line of insurance, and I apologize to everyone out there who writes it or works with it in any way because I was ever wrong about that. And one of the things that fascinated me about early life insurance once I started researching it was this product called the tontine. Not just because it's a super fun thing to say, even though it is tontine. 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 Okay, I get to say it a lot this episode. My very first exposure to the concept of the tontine, though, was even earlier, even though I wasn't even totally aware. I do remember thinking at the time, haven't I heard this word tontine before? Wasn't it a Simpsons episode with Grandpa Abe? Thank goodness for streaming services, because it took me about 10 minutes to find the episode, called Raging Abe and His Grumbling Grandson in the Curse of the Flying Hellfish. It's from the seventh season, by the way. I rewatched it. It's about Grandpa Abe and his military unit during World War II and how they created a kind of a tontine to distribute the artwork they had illegally stolen from a German mansion. Raging Abe is not the only TV episode about tontines. The animated series Archer has one, even Bugs Bunny, as do a number of other shows. And books. There are so many books featuring tontines. Agatha Christie's 450 from Paddington, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Wrong Box, which is also a movie with Michael Caine, Something Fishy by P.G. Wodehouse. There are a lot. But tontines aren't just important as plot points in fictional stories. They were very, very real. The story of tontines is a story of how an insurance product evolves over time, how an insurance or financial product can go in and out of favor for reasons that aren't immediately obvious, and how the worst thing you think can happen sometimes just doesn't. And as a sidebar, that tontine in the Simpsons episode, I seriously don't know what they were thinking. No wonder no one understands tontines. But after this episode, I think you will understand them pretty well and hopefully will understand how they changed the world. A tontine is not just a fun word to say, even though it is a very fun word to say. It is also unique in that it is an investment that is linked and dependent on a living person in an unusual way compared to any other life insurance product. Sure, we also have insurance products called annuities, which are also linked to a living person, but annuities have a guaranteed monthly payout that never changes. Tontines are different. I apologize in advance because I'm about to introduce some terminology that is unique to annuities and tontines. Hang in there with me and pay close attention for the next couple of minutes, and I will try to repeat the terms a lot. I'll go slow. There are typically two participants in any annuity. The insurance company that sells the annuity and is responsible for making the annuity payments, and the buyer, called the annuitant, important term alert, the annuitant, who gives the insurance company a significant amount of money upfront in payment for that annuity policy. In return for their investment, the annuitant 
receives a fixed amount of money for a certain number of years until they die. If the annuitant lives long enough, they might receive in payments the amount of money that they initially put in, or maybe even more than that amount of money. If the annuitant dies, that money stops. The insurance company, on the other hand, is counting on two things, making investment money off the money that the annuitant provides in that initial payment, and the insurance company is also counting on the annuitant passing away before they ever reach total payout amounts even close to the amount of that initial investment. Annuities have been around in some form since Roman times, amazingly. Tontines, however, are a relatively recent invention, and they're closer to a lottery than an annuity. Let's call them an annuity with a lottery, based on other people's mortality. If you understand that an annuity has two roles, the insurance company and the annuitant, a tontine, in contrast, has four distinct roles. The first role is that of the body that organizes and manages the tontine, basically the administrative arm. We can call them the administrators. The second role is a person called a subscriber. These are the people who pay money into the tontine. The third role is called the shareholder. This is the person who holds the share of the tontine and most importantly, the person who receives the annual financial payout from the tontine. The final member is the nominee. The nominee is a person whose life is at stake in the tontine, basically the person on whom the contract is dependent. While typically the subscriber and the shareholder, the people putting the money in and receiving payments out, are the same people, they don't have to be. The nominee, the person that the policy is based on, that could also be the subscriber or the shareholder, or the nominee could be related to the shareholder of the subscriber. Often they were a son or daughter, but again, they don't have to be. You could have a situation where the person paying the premium, the subscriber, the person receiving the payouts, the shareholder, and the nominee on whom the contract is dependent are all completely different people, totally unrelated to each other. Got that? Hope so. Tontines, so much fun to say. Okay, when the nominee dies, the shareholder's payments end. No more money is paid out to the shareholder. Their share is basically dead, just like their nominee is, well, dead. That means that the pool of people receiving money from the tontine has just shrunk by one person. What does that mean? It means the remaining shareholders get more money when the next payment is dispersed. As nominees die, the pool of remaining shareholders gets smaller and smaller. The amount of money the shareholders receive becomes larger and larger, until there is only one nominee left alive. At that point, all the remaining money is paid out to the last standing shareholder, and the tontine ends. So, for shareholders, there is an element of risk. They may lose money if their nominee dies, or they may make more money, in some cases a lot more money, if their nominee lives a long time, or if they're really lucky, if their nominee is the last survivor. The nominee, unless they are also the shareholder, gets exactly nothing, except feeling like people are a little too involved in their life. Unlike an annuity, which is financially backed by an insurance company, a tontine is supposed to be self-supporting. The money in the investment pool, invested wisely by the administrators, is supposed to bring in enough interest to cover the annual payments to shareholders. And since nothing more is paid out to a shareholder after a nominee's death, the initial investment pool should, in theory, stay the same size over time. 
If the administration of the tontine is done poorly and the administrators don't make good investment decisions, the tontine could fail, and then all the shareholders would be out the money they invested completely. In that case, there is no protection for the shareholders. No insurance company or bank or government entity will step in to make things right, unlike an annuity. The tontine money is just gone. So there is more risk, but also a lot more reward, if you're lucky. The origin of tontines is a bit murky, but we do know that the first time the concept of a tontine was formally laid out on paper was in 1653. A man named Lorenzo de Tonti, see what we did there, was a banker in Italy and proposed the first official tontine to the king of France, Louis XVI. De Tonti's creation was a bit crude, but most of what he suggested would become the basis for tontines in the next two centuries. Also, if you haven't guessed, while de Tonti's financial product wasn't called a tontine at the time, his name obviously inspired the word tontine. De Tonti suggested using this new product to help the king raise money. His idea was to create a fund where people would contribute 300 livres and be placed into groups by age. Every year, the government would distribute 5% interest to the shareholders. Each age group would be its own separate tontine, with deaths only affecting others in the same age group. While his formal idea was new, it wasn't a concept entirely unheard of. For many years, Italy had something called the Monte Pietatis, forgive my pronunciation. This was a way for families to save for a dowry for their daughters. When a girl child was born, the family would give a certain amount of money to a Monte, which was a kind of bank in Italy during that time, and the money would sit and earn interest until the daughter married. The catch was that the daughter had to wait until she was at least 18 to marry. This surprised me, and it might surprise you, because I figured people married younger than that in those days. Apparently, even then, at least some people in Italy had the idea of adulthood starting at 18, which is, if you think about it, kind of an arbitrary number. If this daughter married earlier than 18, or if she died before she married, the Monte Pietatis would pass on to the next youngest daughter. Unfortunately, if the family had no more living girl children, the money was lost and the Monte, the bank, got to keep the funds. Ditanti's idea was interesting, but didn't go very far. My first thought when I read all of this was, how did an Italian banker end up suggesting this to the king of France? Well, it turns out that Ditanti was a pretty savvy politician. He had become governor of a city near Naples a few years prior, and had developed a very close relationship with a Catholic cardinal named Mazarin. Mazarin was an Italian who had been sent to France back in 1640 to provide advice to Cardinal Richelieu. Again, forgive my pronunciation. Richelieu was a bigwig in the French court, if you remember your history. Mazarin eventually served as the de facto regent of France when Louis XVI became king at the age of five. So Detanti was connected. However, his idea for a tontine didn't go anywhere until 45 years later. Louis XVI was still king, but de Tonti had long since fallen out of favor. But the idea was resurrected for very good reasons. Maybe it just took 45 years for people to come around to the idea of a tontine. Or maybe it was because things were starting to get expensive for governments and kings around the end of the 17th century. You can certainly look around Europe at that time and see how government debts were starting to pile up. I'm no expert in European history, but you had the Thirty Years' War, the Franco-Spanish War, the English Civil War, 
the English Restoration, and the Nine Years' War. There was a lot of expensive fighting going on. And in this period, raising money for things like wars or even public institutions wasn't easy. Most public institutions raised money from individuals, not the government. The king or queen could sell the land they owned, or they could raise taxes to get money, but that was tricky. Typically, royalty would approach private lenders for money. We're still in the early stages of the development of modern banking, so a big national bank wasn't an option. When royalty, at this point in history, is also the government, we haven't quite totally separated the monarchy from parliament in England yet, but we'll get there soon. When royalty entered into a contract with a private entity to borrow money, they had three options of paying it back. First, they could borrow money and then pay it back later in one big sum at one time, including any interest charge. Second, they could pay interest periodically and then make one big principal payment at the end of their loan term. Or they could do what we do with home mortgages these days, pay some principal and interest on a schedule over time. Okay, who are we kidding? The number one way these guys borrowed money was to make promises to a lender and then completely default on a loan. The people who resurrected the Tontine saw it as a way for the government and the king to borrow money more easily, with lower interest, and might actually result in people getting paid back. As you can imagine, at some point, the kinds of people who were willing to loan big sums to kings and queens got smaller and smaller, and the interest rates they demanded got bigger and bigger. The Tontine would open up new lending avenues and new people to borrow money from. And since the new King of England seemed to have a permanent itch to fight the French, and Louis XVI seemed to want to return the favor, the two countries had to find money somehow. France was the first. In 1689, the French government started the first real tontine to get money for Louis XVI's ongoing military campaign against the English. The tontine was quite similar to de Tonti's original suggestions with a few modifications. The first difference was that this tontine and frankly, all the tontines in France that would come after, focused on much smaller investors. This is in stark contrast to the tontines the English would use a few years later. The French tontine was one that regular people, working people, could invest in. Investors had to contribute 300 livres to become subscribers. That would be about 6,000 U.S. dollars today. Not a pittance, but manageable for some people who weren't part of the aristocracy. As a result, these French tontines had much higher participation than the English ones had. For example, the 1689 tontine attracted 6,000 investors. That's probably at least three times what the English tontines generally got in terms of buy-in. The French set up the tontine by age group, and the interest you received was higher the older the nominee was at the time of entry into the tontine. If you remember all my terminology... The nominee was the person whose life and death formed the basis of the contract. So if your nominee was five years old, you received 5% interest. If your nominee was over 65 years old, you got 12.5% interest. This was a change from Detanti's initial concept and a good improvement as it encouraged older nominees who, in theory, would die earlier. The Tontine also had fairly strict guidelines as to how it confirmed the exact age of the nominee. I'm sure there were people pretending their nominee was older than they actually were to get a better interest rate and hopefully more longevity out of their nominee, and they also required strict documentation of proof of life over time, so that reduced the potential for fraud some. Like Detanti's original concept, the age bands didn't mix. If someone died in an age band, 
that money was distributed to the other people in that age band. A separate tontine for each age band, basically, within one larger concept. The tontine raised some money, certainly more like a drop in the bucket of the French war debt, but managed to continue successfully until 1726. That was the date that the very last surviving nominee died. Her name was Charlotte Barbier, and the final payout to her shareholder was about 73,000 livres. I believe from my reading that Charlotte lucked out in that she was both the nominee and the shareholder, so she did see that money come to her. A pretty good return on an investment of 300 livres. The success of this tontine led to others. Eventually, France would have nine government tontines going at the same time. In England, King William was also trying to figure out how to pay his war debt and fund his grudge against Louis. They were currently fighting the Nine Years' War. Not even four years later, in 1693, Parliament decided to create a tontine for that purpose. It was called the Million Act, and the goal was to raise one million pounds, not surprisingly. That's about 500 million pounds today. Again, not a massive sum in terms of the actual money being spent on the war and the outstanding debt they already had. The Nine Years' War would eventually cost England something like 72 million pounds. This tontine, usually referred to as King William's tontine, went even further in amending de Tonti's original idea to make it more palatable for the government. Primarily, they changed the way that the interest was paid. Instead of interest based on age, the interest is broken into two time periods. For the first seven years of the tontine, shareholders would be paid 10% interest. Then, after that period was over, they would be paid 7% interest for 99 years. This was a new idea, and it was an attempt to make the tontine attractive to the people they wanted to invest. This tontine had a higher buy-in of about 100 pounds, about 300,000 U.S. dollars. And for those people who had that kind of money to invest, the interest rate the tontine offered was higher than the standard 6% interest rate being offered in the English marketplace. The interest rate was also lower than the rates that the king and the government usually got when they borrowed money, so it was a deal on their end as well. Unlike the French tontine that paid out all the remaining money when there was only one nominee left, in King William's tontine, when there were seven nominees left, the English government would convert the tontine into individual life annuities, and payments would become permanently fixed until the annuitant's death. There were no classes by age, and shareholders could pick any nominee they wanted, even someone they didn't know at all. The goal was to get 10,000 people to subscribe. Unfortunately, they struggled to find 10,000 people that would put up the amount of money needed to fund the tontine. To encourage more people, the English government also told the public that if not enough people subscribed, the existing shareholders could take an option to convert their tontine shares into a more traditional annuity-type product with an amazing 14% interest rate, which meant you could probably earn back your investment in a relatively short period. Eventually, a little over a thousand people invested in the tontine, a tenth of what they wanted. To be honest, it seems like the whole thing was kind of a bit of a mess. But this was the first time that the English government had borrowed money by issuing long-term government debt, and this was a big deal. And it was the first time that Parliament had made a war loan, a public debt, a national debt, rather than the king's debt. And while King William's tontine wasn't entirely a success, Parliament and the king could see how this might work. They just had to hit on the right combination of terms, cost of buy-in, interest rates, and payouts. 
Where tontines in England and other places shone, though, was in situations where smaller amounts needed to be raised. Tontines turned out to be great for smaller projects, private projects where an amount of money needed to be raised that one person just couldn't do on their own. In this time period again, commercial banking wasn't a thing yet, and I have a hard time imagining what you had to prove to get a loan of any size from a bank or an individual if you were a merchant or low-level gentry member without much in terms of assets. If you remember, the first life insurance policies were used in England to support individual lending, but those amounts were usually not very large. When the English Parliament passed the Gambling Act in 1774, tontines were very much excluded from that legislation. So, for example, in Kent in 1774, a tontine was used to build a bridge, called, not surprisingly, the Tontine Bridge. The administrators raised £24,000 by selling 2,000 shares. They used the money to build the bridge and used the toll money they received to pay the interest. This was unique in that the initial amount of money paid in wasn't just sitting there and funding the interest through investment. They were raising the interest money through other means. King William's tontine did this as well. Instead of tolls, they created several 99-year taxes to pay the interest. The government tontines were very bad about letting the money sit and earn interest, to be honest and they needed to find other ways to fund the Tontine interest. The Tontine Bridge operated this way until the number of shares in the Tontine was reduced by 75%, meaning 25% of the nominees had died, basically. Once that happened, the administrator converted the shares into real property ownership in the bridge and toll revenues for the shareholders. Now they owned real property that could be sold, or even passed on to their heirs. Glasgow, in Scotland, is full of buildings with the word tontine in their name. Many of these were part of a tontine created in 1816. Subscribers in the tontine contributed their money to a fund that was used to buy real estate. Originally, the tontine rules stated that the shareholder of the last surviving nominee would inherit everything, all the property in the tontine. But in 1901, the shareholders of the last four nominees in this case, I think most of the nominees were also the shareholders. They all got together and decided they would amend the terms of the tontine. They decided to share the property and then sell it off over time and pocket the proceeds. Tontines even managed to try and come across the ocean to the new United States. Alexander Hamilton suggested establishing a government tontine in 1790 as part of his plan to consolidate state and federal debt after the Revolutionary War. I am so proud to finally be able to shoehorn a reference to the musical Hamilton into this podcast, though I will not torture you by trying to rap. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? Okay, a little bad rapping, sorry. The National Bank part of Hamilton's proposal was accepted after a lot of wrangling, especially from his rival Jefferson, who thought all of this was just going to put the U.S. in perpetual indebtedness. Unfortunately, Hamilton's idea to use tontines as a way to placate people who were holding U.S. debt never really took off. Looking at our national debt now, well, maybe Hamilton was onto something. The U.S. government never took up the idea of tontines again. But that wasn't the end for tontines in the United States. Like in England, non-governmental tontines were used to build structures and create real estate companies. There are a number of them I could go over, but this one is my favorite, the Tontine Coffee House. In New York, we can give Tontines credit for the first home of the New York Stock Exchange. 
1792, 24 men who were the first stockbrokers in New York City created the New York Stock Exchange. But they had no home to conduct business. If you remember my podcast episode on coffee culture in London, you might remember that a lot of the London coffee houses became other things over time. Lloyd's Coffee House became the home of Lloyd's of London, and Jonathan's Coffee House became the home of the London Stock Exchange. So it is no surprise that the members of the New York Stock Exchange decided to build a coffee house in New York to house their operations. They used a tontine, with 203 subscribers to raise money to build the Tontine Coffee House which was located at the corner of Wall and Water Streets. Connecting this Tontine coffeehouse to the broader insurance world, the coffeehouse was also open and welcoming to insurance underwriters and was the home for many insurance operations for years. Trading continued in the coffeehouse until 1817 when they moved the New York Stock Exchange to 40 Wall Street, where they stayed until they moved into their current home in 1865. I went and looked up both the location of the Tontine Coffee House and 40 Wall Street just to see what's there now. The coffee house, long since burned down in a 19th century fire, is now the Wall Street Hotel, and 40 Wall Street is now the Trump Building. I admit I had kind of hoped at least one of them was a Starbucks, right? Tontines in the United States, however, primarily became a major driver of the U.S. insurance market after the Civil War, and made up the majority of the life insurance policies sold between 1868 and 1906. Henry Baldwin Hyde, who owned a company called the Equitable Life Assurance Company, is credited with creating the first tontine of this type in the United States. Some credit should also go to a man named Shepard Holmans, who was an actuary and helped develop the product, even though his Wikipedia entry is almost entirely focused on his Princeton football career. Insert actuary jokes here. (laughs) But really, that's a shame. If you're wondering why it was called an assurance company with an A and not an insurance company with an I, there is technically a difference between the two terms assurance and insurance, but it's a bit esoteric. Assurance is an old term we don't use anymore in the U.S., preferring to use the word insurance instead. You will still see the word assurance in use in the U.K. and Europe, though. Unlike poor Shepard, the football-playing actuary, Henry Baldwin Hyde is a much bigger figure in the world of U.S. business and insurance. His first go at a tontine in 1868 was a bit of a dud, but he persisted, amending the terms of the tontine and launching a new program in 1871 called the Tontine Savings Fund Assurance. This product was extremely popular, and by 1905, only three life insurance companies in the United States did not offer a tontine-type product as part of their lineup. For Henry Baldwin Hyde, the tontine product drove profits at his insurance company and made him as rich as J.P. Morgan. The Equitable Life Assurance Company was the largest insurance company in the entire world by 1899. Their building in New York was the tallest commercial building in the United States for a while, at a whopping nine stories. (laughs) And it was the first to have elevators, though can you imagine a nine-story hike every morning without elevators? By 1905, there were almost nine million tontine policies in the United States. At this time, the U.S. was made up of approximately 18 million households, so that gives you an idea of just how ubiquitous they were. They were two-thirds of all insurance contracts in the U.S. The market was enormous and helped along by aggressive sales and advertising something that hadn't been done before with insurance. 
If you hate those insurance ads that are all over the television all the time, you can blame the 19th century tontine. These tontines were a hybrid, and that's partly why they were so popular. When you bought a policy from the Tontine Fund Savings Assurance Program or any other tontine program in the U.S., you got two things. One was a savings fund slash tontine, and the other was a traditional life insurance policy. The person purchasing the tontine was the subscriber, the shareholder, and the nominee. The payment was made in small installments over 20 years. After 20 years, you could do what you wanted with the money you were owed. You could take it all in a lump sum, you could use it like a savings account and withdraw money when you needed it, or you could take that money and use it to buy another life insurance product like an annuity. You also had a fully paid life insurance policy that matured only after those 20 years had passed. If you quit paying money to the program before the 20 years was up, your policy lapsed and you received no money back at the end of your 20-year term. If you died before the 20-year term was up, you lost all your money. Your insurance paid out zip. However, unlike earlier tontines, not all of the money from defaulted or deceased customers was redistributed to the remaining tontine shareholders. Some of it was, yes, but some of it the insurance company kept outright. This hybrid tontine concept came along at the perfect time for it to become quite popular, sales and marketing notwithstanding. Unlike 50 years prior, a lot of parents and adult children no longer lived together, and there was no family farm you could count on as shared property and shared income. Sure, not everyone had that 50 years ago, but the Industrial Revolution also hadn't yet come along and moved so many young people into the city either. The U.S. had no system of public or private pensions. In old age, you had no retirement vehicle, except to keep working until you dropped dead or someone was willing to take care of you. Tontines filled an important financial void. So you might be asking, if these tontine programs were so popular in the United States, what happened? No one's ever asked me about joining a tontine when trying to sell me life insurance. Well, there's a very good reason. Tontines were outlawed in the U.S. for reasons you might not think. Tontines started declining in England and France long before they were outlawed in the U.S., although the reasons were vastly different. The last British government tontine was in 1789. This final tontine was called King George's Tontine, after the current king at the time, George III. They wanted to raise a million pounds to be added to the general coffers, not for any particular purpose, but there just weren't a lot of takers, and the interest rates weren't great. In 1789, unlike a hundred years prior, investors had a lot more options than tontines, many of which were more attractive. Banking, for example, had come a long way since King William's tontine back in 1693. The Bank of England was actually established in 1694, the year after King William's tontine had started, so you could invest there if you were looking for something safe and protected. Investors must have also looked across the pond at what was happening in France and wondered if it would happen in England as well. Tontines had been officially banned in France in the late 1760s because they had simply not made any money for the government. This was because they had such high interest rates. If you remember, the first French tontine had a rate of 12% interest if you were over 65, in contrast to the English tontine's 5-7% to interest for the same age range. So there was some chatter that the tontines weren't really about raising money for the crown in France. They were a way to basically bribe the masses. They didn't make much money at all for the government, that was clear. By the 1770s, France was in so much royal debt, not just from tontines, but also the fact they had been at war for about half the century, 
that the government debt payment itself was something like a half of all yearly revenues. Because of their enormous debt, the French government took the step of freezing all existing tontine payments in the 1770s and converting them into life annuities to reduce future debt. This wouldn't have been so bad, but then the government stopped paying entirely, leaving all those tontine shareholders with nothing but bad feelings. Eventually, all this royal debt led to the French Revolution, which started the same year that King George's tontine was established in England. Tontines may have contributed to the French Revolution. Who knew? Here's what didn't happen with tontines, the thing that every single book or movie or TV show suggests tontines inevitably led to. People did not kill each other off to reduce the pool of nominees, really. There is not one credible account or example of this happening anywhere, identified by anyone. Which I think is sort of amazing, but, I mean, not all tontines publicly released the names of their nominees. Some did, and the nominee lists were public record. Even the smaller tontines, like the ones for the bridge in Kent or the real estate group in Glasgow, where you might think the possibility is higher with a lot of the shareholders knowing each other, just nothing. It only happened in fiction. Other nefarious things were happening, though, even if shareholders didn't stoop to murder. The nominees in the various tontines in England and France had impressive longevity. Much higher than the general population, though, not so much that it was shocking. Just enough. De Tonti, when he first suggested the idea of a tontine, wrote in his edict that tontines would give rise to husbands and wives taking better care of each other. Okay, well, maybe, but Jane Austen might have said it better. People always live forever when there is an annuity to be paid them. Some of this had to do with luck and bad management. All of the larger tontines did a terrible job of estimating longevity and expected mortality risk in general. That's because there wasn't any way to estimate these things back then. If you remember from my Gambling Act podcast episode, mortality tables were just being invented in the 17th and 18th centuries, and frankly, they hadn't yet figured out how to make a decently accurate mortality table. Some of it was just gaming the system in a way that anyone would probably try to. For example, in a lot of these larger tontines, the nominee and the shareholder weren't the same people. So that begs the question, who do you pick as your nominee? Who would you pick? to be your nominee if you were a shareholder? It's kind of a fun question to ponder, right? What type of person would be the best return on investment? While you might comment that many people in the 17th and 18th centuries still believed that death was caused by God and could not be predicted, shareholder behavior as respects their tontine nominees suggests they were more sophisticated than that. The average age of a nominee in a tontine was 10 years old, and the average nominee was female. So people who were picking their nominees knew that after 10 years old, mortality was less likely than it was in early childhood, and that women lived longer than men on average. Those were some pretty good predictions. If you didn't know a girl child in good health who was around 10, eh, sometimes you could hire someone to find one for you. You didn't need to know your nominee personally, after all. Because the nominee could be someone the shareholder didn't know and never had any contact with, you could also take as your nominee someone who, say, was young, maybe very rich. 
with the best medical care that money could buy at that time? Someone like, hmm, for example, William, Duke of Gloucester, the five-year-old heir to the English crown, and he was a common nominee in several tontines, despite never knowing that he was a nominee anywhere. Unfortunately for the people who picked him as their nominee, he died at 11. If you've seen the movie The Favorite with Olivia Colman, that's Queen Anne, William's mom. She had 17 pregnancies and only a handful were live births. William was the only one to make it out of early childhood, and he still died at 11. So sad. While people did try to game the system this way by picking nominees who were most likely to live a long time, I mean, that wasn't illegal by any means. What might have been real fraud was related to the much lower rates of child mortality within the tontines than in the general population. It's possible, and some historians say it's very probable, that some people had young nominees who died, but found a way to lie to the tontine about the death and therefore continued to receive money. There also may have been situations where, especially if the nominee was a shareholder's child, a child may have died and a family member would then rename one of their other children with the name of the nominee, therefore avoiding a report of death and loss of income. It's hard to know how much of this type of fraud there was, but later tontines had much stricter requirements to prove that your nominee was still living, which probably reduced the fraud potential some. By the time 1808 came around, the English Parliament took steps to reduce the use of tontines even further, though they'd mostly fallen out of favor. You may recall the Glasgow tontine I spoke about early was established in 1816, so they didn't go away entirely. Parliament passed a law called the British Life Annuity Act, which basically said that if the government was going to sell a life annuity, it could only do so under certain terms, which basically prohibited selling government life annuities to people under 35. The big tontines, the government tontines, were gone. Tontines in the U.S. came to a more scandalous end. Henry Baldwin Hyde, whose company Equitable Life had established the first really successful tontine in the U.S., died in 1899. His son James took over the company. James was 23 and a bit free, okay, a lot free, with his money and he had lots and lots and lots of money. In 1905, he held a New Year's ball that was so extravagant that adjusted for inflation, it may still be one of the fanciest parties ever held in the U.S. It was a costume party held in a recreation of Versailles, and the best part is he hired a photographer for the occasion, so we have pictures of the guests posing in their absolute finest party outfits. It sounds like a great party. But it wasn't a good choice for James because around that time, New York State had established something called the Armstrong Committee, a committee that was created to investigate life insurance companies and illegal activity by those life insurance companies. A lot of people, no surprise, thought that James had paid for his super fancy party using money from his insurance company. But luckily for him, he had actually used his own money. That didn't come out for a while, but James decamped for France pretty soon after the New Year's ball, just in case. If James hadn't used company money to fund his extravagant lifestyle, it sounds like he might have been in the minority among insurance company executives. The investigation revealed a lot of fraud. The Armstrong Committee investigated three main issues. First, the money that the insurance companies received from those tontine life insurance hybrid policies there were no federal or state regulations at that time as to how to manage that money, invest that money, or even account for that money. 
Insurance companies could use that money however they wanted, and it was a lot of money. In 1868, before the Tontine product hit the market, insurance companies had about $203 million in premium money to invest. In 1905, that amount of money was $2.7 billion. That is an insane increase and a huge amount of money to have discretion over with no oversight. Second, the committee knew that some of that money was definitely being used inappropriately, including to bribe judges and politicians, sometimes outright bribes, sometimes sweetheart loans with super low or no interest. They also used some of that money to pay sales agents huge commissions and bonuses, which encouraged predatory sales practices, as you might imagine. And finally, the committee had issues with the way that the tontine policies were set up and administered. As you might recall, you had to pay in a certain amount over 20 years before your policy matured. If you stopped paying or you were late, your policy lapsed and you lost any money you had already contributed. If you died before the policy matured, you forfeited any money you had contributed. Henry Baldwin Hyde, the man who had really started selling the first U.S. tontine, had stated in the past that based on Equitable's experience, somewhere between half and two-thirds of people who bought tontine policies would either lapse payments or default entirely. Over the years, some people had tried to sue the insurance companies about this issue, which is understandable, but the lawsuits hadn't gone very far. The Armstrong Committee felt that customers who lapsed, defaulted, or even died during the 20-year term where they were making payments should have something to show for all the money they had given the insurance companies over that time, that it was unfair that they should lose all of their money. As a result of the Armstrong investigation, New York banned tontines altogether in 1906 and instituted stricter guidelines for the life insurance industry as a whole. The tontine was effectively dead in the U.S. after that. Even today, while there is some argument as to whether tontines are strictly illegal or not in the U.S., there are enough legal barriers in place in the insurance and banking system that they are effectively banned. And yet, tontines are trying to make a comeback. In the mid-2010s, the publication of two books on tontines made a lot of people think about resurrecting them in the new millennium. Sure, in some places, tontine-like products never went away. In this podcast episode, I focused on France, England, and the U.S., but in places like Israel, a product similar to a tontine has been in use for a while there, mostly on kibitzim. And in South Africa, women have a similar type of product, though mostly unbanked, called the Nobuntu, which is a sort of micro-pension product. In 2015, a book called King William's Tontine by Moshe Milevsky basically reintroduced the tontine to financial specialists and insurance experts. Malevsky is an academic in mathematics and statistics. I read his book for the podcast, and while I will not pretend I really understood some of his math, it was an interesting read. This wasn't a book for the masses, mind you. It was definitely for people who were in the field. In 2016, though, another book called The Hundred-Year Life by Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott, also professors, became an international bestseller. It was extremely popular in Japan, and as a result, tontines have really started to take off there. As you might have known, Japan has a large elderly population, something like 28% of the country is over 65. Not all Japanese people have access to company-sponsored pension plans. 
There is a national pension provided by the government, but it's not a lot of money. So there was a need to fill a financial hole for older people. These Japanese tontines are a little more evolved than the ones I've talked about in this podcast, which you would expect as financial products are tweaked and improved. In the case of one of these tontines, a product wonderfully called Happiness of Longevity Tontine by the Japan Post Insurance Company, you have to be at least 50 to begin contributing to the tontine. You pay a yearly premium equivalent to about 4,000 U.S. dollars a year until you are 65, and then you begin to get an annual payment from the tontine. Unlike prior tontines, you do get money paid out when you die or if you decide to cancel your contract. The nominee and the shareholder are the same person. In Europe, tontines are still not common and they are still illegal in some places. There is at least one company trying to get a tontine off the ground in the UK, though it hasn't gotten very far. In the US, again, it's about the same. Some companies have looked into it, and you can find websites discussing the possibilities of bringing back tontines as new and improved with blockchain. Don't get me started with blockchain. I have a lot of feelings about blockchain. One article I read summed it up pretty well, saying that the rise in interest about products like tontines tracks with a general distrust of the financial markets and insurance companies in general right now, with some kind of feeling that people would like to go back to simpler times, like times in which tontines existed, except, you know, with computers. Would a tontine work now? I mean, we can keep an eye on these Japanese tontine products and see how they look in 10 or 20 years. Personally, I like knowing that my financial retirement products are backed by an insurance company that is required to follow a whole host of regulations about what they can do with my premium and the investment money they make, knowing that on the very slim chance that the insurance company fails, the government and the capital markets would have my back and find a way to make it right with the consumer. But maybe that's just me. On the insurance versus history front, well, I think history won this round. Ditanti, the man who invented the tontine, died in 1665, totally forgotten and entirely broke. His kids did better, probably because they left Italy. One of Ditanti's sons actually founded the city of Detroit, and the other is considered the father of the state of Arkansas. Ditanti may have failed to bring his financial product to fruition, but he raised some adventurous kids, that's for sure. King William's tontine, though a failure, was the thing that prompted friend of the pod Edmund Halley, yes, the comet guy, to create the first legitimately useful mortality table using people from a small town in what is now Poland as his subjects. Not to mention King William's tontine was the first time Parliament had issued long-term government debt and took on the responsibility for war debt, rather than making it the monarchy's responsibility. The Armstrong Committee launched the career of one of the U.S.'s most important politicians, although you get a pass if you haven't heard of him. His name was Charles Evans Hughes, and he was the legal counsel for the committee. His good press during the Armstrong Committee resulted in Hughes becoming the governor of New York in 1906 and then being appointed to the Supreme Court, and then resigning from the court in 1916 to run for president against Woodrow Wilson. He lost and then becoming Warren Harding's Secretary of State, and then, finally, going back to the Supreme Court, where he was Chief Justice from 1930 to 1941. James Hazen Hyde resigned from his father's company, Equitable Life, and spent some years gadding about before serving in World War I as an ambulance driver in the field and then as an aide to the head of the American Red Cross. He eventually came back to the United States and settled in Saratoga Springs. 
The company his father founded, Equitable Life, kept on writing insurance for another hundred years and was sold to French insurer AXA in 1991. The decline of tontines in the United States can be directly linked to the development of social security as well as the concept of the corporate pension. While tontines only lasted a few hundred years, their impact will likely be felt for many more years to come. And, of course, they will be well represented in books, movies, and television programs, where tontines will, every time, lead to the inevitable murder that never happened in real life. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurance versus history so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. Mm-hmm.